Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and sexual situations that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was a cool night in early 1801, and the Chinese pirate Captain Cheng Yi was in a foul mood. For the past several days, he and his fleet of ships, known as junks, had raided several fishing villages along the coastline. Now he was anchored near the southern city of Guangzhou, and he was exhausted. But Cheng wasn't just tired. He was also lonely. Of course, there were plenty of women around, and he enjoyed their company whenever he wished. But they were concubines, and he was bored with endless sexual conquest. So he ordered his men to find him a new woman to become his wife. And they delivered. Several dozen women were now tied up on the deck of Cheng's flagship. He walked down the line, examining each woman's face. They all hung their heads, refusing to look the pirate captain in the eye. All except one, a woman named Ching Shi. She glared at Cheng as he approached. He paused and asked her name, but she stayed silent, only staring at him with ferocious rage. Cheng was impressed. This woman was unlike the others. He nodded to one of his men to untie her and bring her to his cabin. But as soon as the ropes were off her wrists, she lunged at him, reaching for the knife on his belt. Cheng ducked out of the way, laughing. He was convinced that he had finally met his match. So Cheng decided to marry her and thus make her part of his pirate crew. Of course, Cheng didn't know that one day she was going to take over his fleet and become more powerful than any other pirate in history. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we've been looking at the unique democratic dictatorships that flourished during the golden age of piracy. Last week, we met a few women who etched their names into history books as vicious pirate leaders. Today, we'll meet the greatest of them all, the legendary Chinese pirate queen, Cheng Yi Sao, also known as Ching Shi. We'll follow her rise from the streets of Guangzhou to the helm of the greatest pirate fleet to ever sail the South China Sea, or any other sea for that matter. We'll also discuss the vast differences between East and West in terms of pirate codes and social norms, as well as Ching Shi's victory over the Chinese government and why her legendary success was mostly ignored by historians. We'll set sail for the East coming up. Stay with us. Before we dive into Ching Shi's life and career as a pirate queen, we need to explore the concept of piracy in China. The life of rogue sailors in the South China Sea was vastly different from Western privateers or Caribbean buccaneers. The earliest records of Chinese piracy date back to the 4th century BCE. These ancient stories of sea bandits tell of small crimes of convenience. Piracy was used as a supplement to farming and fishing. Fishermen often used their own boats, 
plying their local waters to rob merchant ships and river barges to bolster their household income. This tradition grew over the years to include entire families in the coastal villages, banding together with large boats to form armadas. As piracy became a full-time occupation, it was not unusual for a pirate to be joined on a ship by his wife and children. As such, Chinese pirate ships, called junks, were like floating communities. In some of these seaborne villages, it was possible for crew members to go years without ever setting foot on land. Piracy was about supplies more than loot. The goal of raids was to keep the community fed, watered, and clothed. Unlike their Western counterparts, Chinese pirates and sailors didn't seem to hold on to superstitions about women on their ships. So by the 17th and 18th centuries, nearly every Chinese pirate crew had women in their ranks. And they were more than simply cooks and washers. Many held important sailing jobs. This inclusion was vastly different from life in other realms of Chinese society. Confucian teachings passed along the idea that most women in mainland China were to be treated as subservient to men. However, the seaborne lifestyle necessitated a different philosophy. According to piracy expert Dian Murray, the coastal provinces of Guangdong and Fujian boasted a rich mixture of non-Chinese ethnic groups whose social customs were not always in accord with the mainstream. So it comes as little surprise that one of these provinces, Guangdong, is where Qing Shi was born around 1775. While there's little information about her origins and adolescence, we do know that she was a sex worker in the provincial capital city, Guangzhou, by the late 1790s. The sex work industry was harsh and cruel. At best, women were seen as subservient, and at worst, treated as commodities. Unfortunately, it was a thriving industry. Brothels in port cities were often on boats anchored outside of town where men could visit clandestinely. These floating bordellos were called flower boats, and Ching Shi likely lived and worked aboard one for years. She would have seen abject violence and witnessed firsthand how human lives were measured in gold, spices, or other valuables. However, in this difficult life, she not only survived, but thrived. She was cunning and direct. By her late 20s, she developed a keen sense of business and leadership. Some have even suggested that by 1801, she oversaw one of the flower boats as a madam. Unfortunately, 1801 was also the year when the infamous pirate captain Cheng Yi raided Guangzhou. Cheng Yi was the head of one of several pirate fleets operating along the Chinese and Vietnamese coasts. By the start of the 1800s, Cheng Yi was well-known and feared. Cheng Yi's raid on the outskirts of Guangzhou resulted in plenty of captives being taken for ransom. Or, in the case of one particular woman, for marriage. The story of Ching Shi attacking her future husband is almost certainly apocryphal. But the outcome was the same. Not long after the raid, she married the pirate leader and became known as Cheng Yi Sao, or wife of Cheng Yi. While her contemporaries would have known her by this name, for the sake of clarity, we'll continue referring to her as Ching Shi. 
By all accounts, Cheng Yi was a devoted husband, and Ching Shi became his partner in every sense of the word. Her business acumen was immensely valuable to Cheng Yi, and their partnership blossomed in profit as much as in love. But this may have been inevitable in the context of Chinese pirate culture. The clearest picture of how the pirates treated marriage comes from a pair of English sailors named Richard Glasspool and Jay Turner, both of whom spent time as Xi's captives, albeit several years apart, and later wrote about their experiences. Glasspool reported that captured women were often bought and sold among the pirates. However, after the transaction, both the woman and the pirate were considered bonded. The union offered some measure of protection. Glasspool wrote, The woman is considered the lawful wife of the purchaser, who would be put to death if he discarded her. Turner witnessed something similar. During his imprisonment, he saw numerous women and children seized during raids. The children were brought up as servants, and the women were, quote, reserved by the pirates for wives and concubines. The pirates are obliged to be constant to her, no promiscuous intercourse being allowed amongst them. These customs enforced relative loyalty and peace among the captured women, and she was no exception. But because her husband was a pirate captain, Ching Shi was more than a normal wife. She took on a leadership role and gained respect among the crews. Still, as Cheng Yi's wife, she had another basic responsibility, children. She ended up bearing two of Cheng Yi's sons in the ensuing years. However, it was Cheng Yi's adopted son who would come to have the most profound effect on Ching Shi. The young man was named Cheng Pao, and he was one of the most favored captains in the fleet. Pao was the son of a fisherman who had been captured in a raid when he was young. He served as Cheng Yi's cabin boy and quickly drew favor from the pirate captain and his wife. As Pao grew older and more accomplished as a sailor and pirate, Cheng Yi finally gave him command over one of the pirate junks. Soon, the three formed a leadership triad at the head of Cheng Yi's armada. However, by a stroke of luck, the formation of this tight-knit pirate family came just in time for a massive upheaval in the South China Sea. And this turmoil was an opportunity for them to become the most powerful pirate clan in the world, even if it meant losing their home. In the late 1700s, Cheng Yi and his fleet were but one of many operating in the waters off southern China and Vietnam. But just as in the Caribbean, the reason for this smorgasbord of sea banditry was political. From 1771 to 1802, Vietnam was divided by two political factions, the official Nguyen government and the Thai Sun rebels. In 1792, when these rebels were in perpetual need of resources, manpower, and weapons, they turned to the various pirate captains operating along the coast, including Cheng Yi. Much like Western privateering in the previous two centuries, the rebels paid these pirates to wreak havoc in government territory and attack Nguyen naval vessels. However, when the Nguyen government finally cracked down on the rebels, it also meant the pirates were caught in the crossfire. In July 1802, the government moved against the Thai Sun and crushed the rebellion. When government forces reached Cheng Yi's hideout, he and Ching Shi fled to China. Vietnam was no longer safe. 
The various pirate crews that had once united to support the Taishan rebels were now scattered throughout the South China Sea and all along China's coast. They began to function like gangs of roving bandits, each one operating independently, much like the early Caribbean buccaneers. It didn't take long for spats to break out among these disparate pirate communities. Small fleets attacked each other and embarked on disorganized raids, often losing more than they gained. There was no oversight or cooperation, which meant there was less loot and more danger. It was chaos. But Ching Shi knew chaos. From her days as a madam in a busy port city, she knew how to manage volatile attitudes, and as captains, so did Cheng Yi and Cheng Pao. The three of them commanded immense respect, and they used their influence to unite dozens of pirate crews under a single banner, Cheng Yi's. The specifics of the leadership structure are lost to history, but by 1805, there were six massive organized fleets sailing under the command of Cheng Yi. With Xi by his side and Pao at the helm of one of the largest vessels, the fleet grew to over a thousand pirates. Their future looked ripe with success. Unfortunately, Cheng Yi wouldn't be there to see it. Not long after his pirate kingdom was finally united, Cheng Yi died. Legend has it that he died in a horrific storm in 1807. Some say that a tsunami struck his ship, casting him into the sea where he drowned. Ching Shi was suddenly a widow, and she was facing the prospect of the six fleets once again dissolving into disjointed, chaotic bands. But with her husband's death, what was his became hers, which meant the pirate kingdom had a new queen. And Ching Shi was going to leave no doubt about who was in charge even if she had to kill to do it. Coming up, Ching Shi and her adopted son, Cheng Pao, lay down the law. The internet, what would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. In 1807, 32-year-old Ching Shi inherited her husband's six pirate fleets and stepped into a potential power vacuum. 
Her husband, Cheng Yi, had been one of the most notorious pirate captains in the hemisphere. And after his death, the various fleet captains were looking for a new leader. Ching Shi knew how to play politics. She'd spent years being exploited as a sex worker. But eventually, she allegedly came to run her own brothel before marrying one of the most fierce pirates in China. This tough and varied experience had transformed Ching Shi into a resourceful and eloquent manipulator of men. Pirate historian Dean Murray puts it succinctly, writing that she assumed and executed leadership, perhaps playing on male fear of her mysterious potency. In these instances, she demonstrated skill, cunning, and public presence. Ching Shi was determined to keep control of her pirate confederacy, but she needed support to do it. Simply inheriting power didn't mean she inherited the loyalty. While she worked to gain the support of all the fleet captains, she knew she also needed a second-in-command, someone who had her back and was preferably armed to the teeth. Her most loyal ally was her adopted son, Cheng Pao. To prevent competition among the crews and make a clear chain of command, Ching Shi put Pao in command of the Red Fleet. The multiple fleets under Shi's control were denoted by the color of their flags, unlike Western pirates who almost exclusively used a black one. In addition to a black fleet, there were several other colors, and the Red Fleet was by far the most powerful. With her son Pao as its commander, nobody would dare question Ching Shi's orders. In a single move, Ching Shi had established herself as a firm and decisive leader and backed up her command with firepower and a respected executive officer. However, there was a little more to her power move. She and Pao also had a sexual relationship. In the months immediately following Cheng Yi's death, she took her adoptive son as a lover. And this wasn't as unusual as it might initially seem. After all, both she and Pao had been captured by Cheng Yi, and neither was related by blood. After years of forming a deep bond of trust through criminal enterprise, it seemed a normal evolution of their close relationship. But the union wasn't just about love and companionship. It also confirmed the loyalty between them, establishing a united front of leadership. This solidified the chain of command and prevented challenges by other captains, since the two most powerful leaders were now one. As an additional measure of formalizing control, she oversaw Pao's implementation of a new code of laws. Similar to the Articles of Confederation among the Caribbean pirate crews, these laws established the division of loot and punishments for infractions. However, some of the punitive laws were much harsher than anything found in the Western Hemisphere. For example, if any pirate raped a female prisoner, he was put to death. However, if the sex were consensual, both parties were executed. Promiscuity was essentially outlawed. After years on the flower boats, Ching Shi knew the power of sex and its ability to corrupt or cloud judgment. And she encouraged Pao to prevent this corruption aboard their ships. But sex was far from the only crime that threatened to undermine their pirate empire. According to maritime historian David Cordingly, for deserting or going absent without leave, 
a man would have his ears cut off. The punishment for disobeying an order or for stealing from the common treasure or public fund was death by beheading. These harsh punishments were doled out as necessary, but always fairly. After all, the sheer size of Xi's pirate empire meant that no single person could oversee the governing of all the ships and crews. When she took on leadership, Xi's confederation was composed of over 400 vessels and with between 40,000 and 70,000 pirates. In contrast, Blackbeard commanded around 300 men on four ships when he blockaded Charlestown, now known as Charleston. Across Xi's six fleets, there were hundreds of huge junks with 20 to 30 cannons each, carrying crews of 400 men and women apiece. There were also nearly 800 coastal ships, each with a dozen cannons and 200 crew. Rounding out the fleets were dozens of small riverboats. With all these various vessels, nothing was out of reach. River villages could be reached by shallow boats, whereas island communities and merchant ships could be pillaged by the junks. Their targets ranged from East India Company trading vessels to Portuguese merchant ships operating between Malaysia and China. The pirates even sacked port villages stocked with recently delivered goods. Nothing was beyond their reach. This was because by 1808, Xi's forces were bigger than most countries' entire navies, much to the chagrin of the nations whose merchants were being plundered. And much like her Gulf of Mexico contemporary Jean Lafitte, Ching Shi acted as an admiral overseeing the operations of all her captains. The expanding network came to resemble a seaborne mafia more than a pirate armada. Unlike most pirates, Xi's men didn't simply chase down vessels to seize their crew and cargo. They also kidnapped citizens and held them for ransom. And one of their most lucrative techniques was one familiar to any Chicago or New York crime family. Extortion. Xi took the traditional concept of piracy to a whole new level with a protection racket. Dean Murray described the business, saying... It featured the sale of safe passage documents to all coastal fishing workers or shippers and the establishment of financial offices along the coast to serve as fee collection points. The business was almost as financially complex as the pirates were brutally violent. After all, the extortion and protection rackets only functioned if the people were afraid. So Ching Shi and Cheng Pao made sure anyone living within a hundred miles of the coast was absolutely terrified. And they did it with nearly unspeakable violence. The clearest descriptions we have of the pirates' infamous cruelty come from the English sailors Jay Turner and Richard Glasspool, who witnessed the incredible violence firsthand. Glasspool wrote that after capturing a ship or raiding a village, the pirates became, quote, so savage that they frequently took the hearts of their enemies and ate them with rice, believing it gives them fortitude and courage. Turner described a similar execution where he saw the body of a captive who was disemboweled and had his heart soaked in alcohol before it was eaten. He said, I am well assured that this shocking treatment is frequently practiced. It's easy to see how the pirates sailing under Ching Shi became legendary among the coastal populations. 
Essentially, she and Powell made sure the reputations preceded them. Just as Blackbeard had discovered a hundred years before on the other side of the world, she and Pow understood that terrified people submitted much more quickly. And in the case of extortion and ransom, the fear of what the pirates might do is what made families and fishermen pay up. Of course, with such flagrant disregard for law and order, or basic decency, it wasn't long before the Chinese government finally tried to put an end to Xi's reign of terror. In January 1808, a naval commander arrived in Guangzhou, Xi's hometown and the capital of Guangdong province. His name was General Li Chong Kang, and he had just become the commander-in-chief for the provincial navy. His first act as commander was to lead an attack on Xi and Pao's fleet. It did not go well. General Li only had 135 vessels at his disposal, but he was determined to use them as effectively as possible. So he chose to attack at night, using some of the vessels as fire ships. Unfortunately, even setting his own ships ablaze and ramming the pirates with them wasn't enough. The overwhelming pirate forces sunk 15 of the general's ships outright and captured most of the rest. As for General Lee, he was shot in the throat and died instantly. Though her forces had easily fended off the attack, Ching Shi was furious. Her criminal empire was running smoothly. Why had this government lackey believed he could take them on? The general's resounding defeat wasn't enough. She wanted to end any government interference in her business once and for all. So she sent Pao and his Red Fleet up the Pearl River toward the capital in Guangzhou, and they were ordered to burn any town along the way. One of the most violent encounters happened in August 1809. At the village of Sanshan, the local militia tried to build blockades and put up a fight against Pao's pirates. But the pirates quickly overcame the militia, and when the pirates finally reached the village, they burned it to the ground. As a warning to any future militias, Cheng Pao left a calling card. Eighty villagers were decapitated, and their heads were hung on a banyan tree along the riverbank. Sanshan was hardly the only community to suffer as Ching Shi's forces moved up the river. At the community of Tao Chiao, the pirates killed a thousand people. If the goal of the campaign was to terrorize the government, she was succeeding. And yet, amid all the violence, there was still money to be made. On October 1st, 1809, the captive English sailor Glasspool witnessed a raid on a village where 250 women and children were taken hostage. 20 of the women were brought aboard the ship where Glasspool was being held, likely Pow's flagship. Glasspool saw Pow himself appear and demand ransoms accordingly from $6,000 to $600 each. Over the course of a week, about a hundred of the women were ransomed, and then Pow ordered the rest to be sold among his crew for $40 each. Glasspool said that several of the women leaped overboard and drowned themselves rather than submit to such infamous degradation. Ching Shi might have been a woman, but she was a pirate first. She was keenly aware of the value of women on a ship. She couldn't eradicate the custom that held women as commodities, 
even though she herself had gone from commodity to queen. Despite her gender, business was business, and she found that terror made money. And as her fleet made its way closer to the capital city, there was money to be made. The wealth and power Qing Shi continued to amass along her journey to Guangzhou startled the Chinese government. After several failed blockades of the river, the navy realized they were hopelessly outnumbered. There wasn't a navy afloat that could take on a pirate confederacy of tens of thousands of fighters and hundreds of ships. So as Xi's forces came within reach of Guangzhou, the Chinese government was forced to change tactics. According to Dean Murray, the Chinese government shifted its emphasis from extermination to pacification and offered the pirates amnesty. Ching Shi was no fool. She saw the value of a governmental pardon after a long career of piracy. It would allow her and Pao to retire in safety, something that had always been unlikely among pirates. But if they were going to surrender, it would be on her terms. There was no mistaking what the offer from the authorities meant. Without engaging in a battle, Ching Shi had taken on the imperial Chinese government and won. Coming up, Shi plans her retirement from piracy, but finds that crime still pays. Now back to the story. In February 1810, 35-year-old pirate queen Ching Shi saw an opportunity to get out of the game with her loot and her life. As we've seen thus far, the retirement record of Caribbean pirates was terrible. However, much like the first pirate king, Henry Every, Ching Shi had challenged an empire and won. Now it was time to decide how she wanted to use the spoils. As a gesture of her intention to cooperate, she had Cheng Pao's Red Fleet stand down before they reached Guangzhou. She ordered a ceasefire and sent Pao to open negotiations with government officials. But the meeting nearly ended in disaster. On February 21st, Pao met with the regional governor general. He must have been aware of how his predecessor, General Li, had met his end, shot through the throat by these very pirates. Suspicions would have been high as the governor general sailed out to meet Pao. Only a fraction of Pao's fleet was present, a sign that there would be no surprise attack. However, Pao raised his red flag as a greeting and then fired off a cannon, startling the governor and his entourage. But once they sat down to a banquet aboard the governor's ship, everything seemed to be copacetic. Pao and his men swore that their intentions to surrender peacefully were honest. Hearing this, the governor replied, Since you are ready to submit yourselves with a true heart, I will lay aside all arms and disperse my forces. I give you three days. In those three days, she and Pao were to list out everything they were associated with. Crew, guns, loot, all of it and then turn it all over. Unfortunately, just hours after meeting, Pao determined that they had been tricked. Not far from where the pirate fleet was anchored, three huge Portuguese ships appeared. Pao was alarmed. This could signal an impending sneak attack by Portugal. But she told him not to provoke any battles, as it would jeopardize the negotiations. So instead, 
Howe weighed anchor and sailed out to sea. When the government general saw the pirates sailing away, he believed they had changed their minds about surrendering. He feared the pirates were planning to assassinate him, just like his predecessor. The governor general retreated to Guangzhou. A few days later, it became clear that the Portuguese vessels were just merchant ships. However, both sides remained on alert, and it appeared as though the ceasefire was about to crumble. But Ching Shi was resolved not to let that happen. She told Pao that the governor general behaved honestly, and thus they had to as well. She said, Let us go to Guangzhou to clear up all doubts. If a man of the highest rank could come to us quite alone, why should I not go to the officers of government? If there be any danger in it, I will take it on myself. On April 18, 1810, Ching Shi returned to her home city of Guangzhou to formally surrender. She went to the governor general's headquarters unarmed, showing that her decision to negotiate a surrender was sincere. Meanwhile, Pao and the rest of the captains discussed a contingency plan. If she didn't come back by a prescribed date and time, they would obliterate Guangzhou. Luckily, Ching Shi made sure it didn't come to that. After two days of negotiations, the terms were set. Any pirate who surrendered their ship and weapons willingly would be pardoned and allowed to keep their cargo, no matter where it had come from. On April 20th, over 17,300 pirates surrendered to authorities, handing over 226 ships, their cannons, and all their small arms. Some 400 pirates refused to give up their criminal lifestyle, and they were arrested once the Confederacy collapsed. 126 were executed, and another 200 or so were exiled. The remaining pardoned pirates were offered ranks in the imperial military. Cheng Pao became a lieutenant and was allowed to keep a portion of the Red Fleet vessels for himself. Though it ended on her terms, Ching Shi's pirate empire was finished, but she was far from done with running a business. By November, Ching Shi and Cheng Pao had retired from the sea and moved to Fujian province. Pao was promoted to lieutenant colonel to oversee an army regiment there. Sometime in the ensuing 12 years, they had a son, but his birth date and name have been lost. While Pao served in the military, Ching Shi led a peaceful life. It is still uncertain whether the pair ever legally married, but they stayed together for the rest of Pao's life. He died in 1822, when he was just 36 years old. Ching Shi left Fujian soon after Pao's death and returned to Guangzhou. The final years of her life are largely a mystery, though there is evidence that she opened and ran an illicit casino. She lived to be 69 years old and died in 1844. The last years of her life were peaceful and quiet, in sharp contrast to her years as a pirate queen. However, even with the uneventful final act of her life, Ching Shi left an undeniable mark on history. At the peak of her career, she led a pirate force that doubled the total number of sailors and soldiers in the infamous Spanish Armada. The sheer size of her pirate military rivaled the population of some entire nations. She managed to keep her confederacy well-supplied, 
well-armed and financially stable for years. This would have been incredible for anyone to do at any time in history. But what makes it even more extraordinary was that Qing Shi was able to do it as a woman in imperial China. At the time, Confucian Chinese wisdom taught that women were to be subservient and meek. This may have been true for Qing Shi in her early years when she was pushed into sex work in a big city, blending in with thousands of other women. Even Dean Murray notes that she was a woman so common that her personal identity is virtually unknown. But Qing Shi's legend wasn't about her identity. It was about her ability to take command of a situation, organize large-scale movements of men and material, and negotiate the tricky waters of interpersonal politics. Though it was her marriage that provided the opportunity for power, it was what she did with that power that changed her world. As Murray summarizes, she wielded authority in ways that made her unusual even by Chinese standards, and throughout her career she acted in open defiance of behavioral norms. She was anything but a docile, submissive homebody. Cheng Shi was arguably the greatest pirate in history, and she was neither a man nor a Westerner. She was a former sex worker from a provincial capital city. Her story is proof that anyone can make history with a little bit of piracy. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we return to the 20th century as we begin a new season on communist populist leaders. And we begin our journey with one of the most influential Marxist leaders, Vladimir Lenin. Among the many sources we used for today's episode, we found the essay Cheng Yi Sao in Fact and Fiction by Dean Murray and Under the Black Flag by David Cordingly extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Andrew Messer with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Chelsea Wood. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. <laughs>